good morning and welcome to the Celeste Stein Show. Today we're going to be taking a look at health disparities and addressing the oral systemic health dilemma. Our special guests today include Dr. Sheree Farmer-Dixon, who is the Dean of the School of Dentistry at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, and Ralph Fucello, who is a principal with the Cambridge Concord and Associates. And it is a mission-driven consultancy out of Boston, Massachusetts, and he is so passionate in his mission to embrace change in diversity and equity and inclusion. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be Thank here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I understand that both of you have been working tirelessly when it comes to health equity and many of the issues faced in today's society. And you and a committee of experts from across the country will be putting on a three-part virtual health summit called Health Integration, Innovation, and Racial Justice, A Call to Action. Dr. Farmer-Dixon, I'm going to begin with you. Tell me how did the virtual summit come about? We really started these discussions almost two years ago. Uh, We were brainstorming and um, in healthcare, we saw the increased uh, information about or questions regarding uh, interprofessional collaboration, integrated teaching, integrated healthcare, and um, you, there were more studies that were coming out that were showing that there were uh, relationships between oral disease and systemic disease, such as periodontal disease and cardiovascular disease uh, and diabetes. And so from our conversations, we started then talking about how could we have an oral systemic health conference that would bring together experts from across the country, as well as non-traditional people, so that we could have a global conversation about not only uh, oral and systemic disease, oral and systemic health, and how we can improve or, or eliminate the health disparities gap and move uh, towards uh, in the direction of health equality for all. So that's really, it started out of a conversation and a vision and just expanded from, from there. Mm-hmm. And Ralph, how did you get involved? Well, I had the great invitation from Dean Farmer Dixon and some others working at Meharry uh, to uh, join them, which is great uh, because over the years, I've had the pleasure and the honor of working with Meharry uh, School of Dentistry uh, on issues of health equity, uh, uh, meeting with some of the students, and also uh, had the great pleasure of honoring Dr. Farmer Dixon with a health equity award. Our relationship has been uh, uh, built on the common and mutual concern that you know we've known health disparities exist for a long time. And when I got the call from Dean Farmer Dixon to see if I could play a role in helping to plan um, a summit, a two-day summit, we hoped. Uh, I was just so excited about that because I knew that we were uh, now in a place where all those years of study about oral systemic connection uh, have come to fruition. There's still more work to do in terms of the science, but you know the mouth is part of the body and health disparities have existed, especially in oral health, for quite a long time. And I could say more uh, later, but the involvement has been terrific and I'm so pleased that we're getting closer to the event. 
Well, as you just mentioned, Ralph, there are many disparities when it comes to healthcare within the African American community. And of course, uh, some of these disparities have been highlighted even more when it comes to COVID-19 and some of the events that we've seen over the course of the last two to three years. Um, I wanted to know, Dr. Farmer Dixon, as a dentist who graduated from Meharry Medical College, who now serves as dean, do you see the role of dentistry changing when it comes to its integration in overall health care? You're muted if-, if yeah. I think when we think about dentistry and, and its role, I won't necessarily say that the role of dentistry uh, is changing. Dentistry has always been a significant component. I think the realization and the understanding and appreciation of the importance of it and the impact that it has on the overall health is, uh, is the transformation that, uh, that, that, is, that is happening. Um, as, as Ralph said, you know, the mouth is a part of the body and uh, what goes into our mouth really can impact and affect the rest of the body. Um, and there are more studies now that show that there's an association between periodontal disease and cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And even most recently now, uh, the association with uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So I think that the, the transformation that is occurring is understanding that uh, dentistry is more than just teeth. It is uh, oral health and oral assessment, and it has an impact on when we're going to talk about comprehensive health and overall health. You cannot do that without included, including dentistry as a component of that. Very, very true. I also wanted to ask, obviously, you've been over the COVID testing sites in the city of Nashville. There have been three COVID testing sites. And so um, I wanted to know if you've had a lot of, I guess, people who have been hesitant to even get tested um, when it comes to COVID-19 within the African-American community. What has that whole process been like? Now, interestingly enough, when we first started, and, and Meharry uh, was one of the sites, and um, people in, our, particularly in the African-American community, but I think in communities in general, uh, want to, they want to go where they're familiar and where they're comfortable and where there's a level of trust. So it was important for us to make certain that we were, uh, that we were actively engaged in uh, all activities related to uh, COVID-19, be it the testing, be it uh, patient education, be it improving access, even now with the vaccine. So what I think that I have, have seen uh, over the, the last what, 10, 11 months of this is a transformation of, yes, there was a hesitancy and there were a lot of uh, unknowns uh, related to the virus. And so this is an opportunity for us to one, do our part to try and educate uh, and inform and remove some of the myths and, and the um, uh, bad information or inaccurate information um, that was in the community. Uh, and so we saw that more and more African-Americans were being tested. I think the biggest impact that we have made in the African-American community with um, testing is our partnerships that we created with churches, with other uh, organizations that were embedded in the community. Because um, 
this allowed us to meet the communities where they were. And not everyone has um, easy access uh, to come to the sites during the week, uh, during the hours. You know, if they're working, they can't, um, they can't leave work or they would have to take off work to come and get tested. But by doing weekend testing and doing it in the communities, it made it easier for um, individuals to, to uh, get tested, and particularly in the African-American communities. The churches have served a significant and important role in those communities. And so by partnering with them again, there was an institution of trust that had been actively engaged. And so through partnership, uh, our largest number of African-Americans were in the communities where we were actually in those areas and we were partnering with, uh, with churches as well. Mm -hmm. Ralph, have you faced some of the same uh issues and dilemmas. Uh, I know you're in Boston. Uh, tell us what's going on up that way. Yeah, uh, well, we actually have the same issues. I think this is a, you know, a, a long-standing uh, issue of, of, you know, how to build trust when um, there are structural and cultural implications for, um, you know, the lack of science. And, and really, the, this goes back to the, the thing that Dr. Farmer Dixon talked about in terms of the popular view of, of even oral health, you know, where in oral health, people think it's all about the teeth and even more, they think it's all about uh, uh, straight white teeth. And, and they think if it's, um, you know, poor health, people can tell us person's social standing. I think some of those issues that lead to stigma and lead to lack of information contribute to that lack of trust. And so um, this reminds me of going back a couple of decades when HIV first came along and, uh, and tobacco control the churches in Boston formed a, a wonderful program called COST, Churches Organized to stay, Stop Tobacco. That's the kind of movement that I think Dr. Farmer Dixon is saying we need again in, in, um, in COVID. You know, for men um, particularly, it was going to the barbershop to do some education on HIV. These are the kinds of things we have to do. What's wonderful about the convening that's coming up this week is that the group has chosen the phrase to focus on person-centered, and community-informed care. And I think that speaks to exactly what Dr. Farmer Dixon and I hope we will be able to see a system built around person-centered and community-informed. Mm -hmm. That's uh, really important that uh, the communication is there and that we begin to, to really reach out. I'm gonna take a quick break. Uh, we do have um, an 800 number that people can call in and they can uh, certainly um, ask questions of, of us. Um, that number is 1-888-627-6008. Again, that's 1-800-627-6008. So if you do uh, want to chime in on this conversation, take that number down and uh, feel free to chime in. Next, um, I would like to uh, talk a little bit about the vaccine. I know that uh, it has been a crazy situation in terms of the rollout, not necessarily having enough um, vaccines all at once. Um, the information regarding the vaccines has been kind of sketchy and people are not sure. Um, Dr. Farmer Dixon, in the Nashville community, um, how are the numbers? I'm understanding, and if, if, if you look at the nation overall, uh, are white 
counterparts are getting vaccinated at two to three times a higher rate than, according to the Kaiser Foundation, than uh, African-Americans. So how, how are we doing in Nashville? In Nashville, we're seeing similar numbers uh, to that as well. Um, uh, Meharry is one of the vaccination sites through our partnership with the health department. So I can say for our particular site and location, the majority of the people that are coming to get the vaccine are African uh, Americans. But I, I think that it's a twofold. Uh, there have been challenges and there still continue to be challenges with having a sufficient supply uh, as it relates to the vaccine. And uh, I anticipate that um, over the next weeks or, and certainly in the next few months that there will be an increase in supply. Um, when we talk about supply, it's not just su supplying the United States, but you're talking about two vaccines that are available that are supplying the world. And uh, so uh, the, the level of supply and demand and just being able to uh, produce enough of, of the vaccine and the vials and, and, and all of the components and, and the the boxes and the shipping labels that go along with um, being able to get those to all of the areas that 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 need it. Uh, I think also you know, with um, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, of course, were the first ones starting the the clinical trials, and so the, those are the first ones to get emergency approval. Uh, we think that uh, Johnson and Johnson's um, vaccine will be will possibly receive emergency approval in the next, and it's anticipated in the next couple of weeks or so. So you will have uh, an increase in, um, in vaccinations from, from that component, because theoretically you would, have, uh, you would have three. But I think the other thing that you have to talk about when we're talking about African-American community is the reality. And the reality is that um, not just within the African-American community, but with, within communities as a whole, that there is the concern that the vaccinations, the vaccines were, um, they, they were developed too fast. And so there's the question of the validity of them um, and the unknown, is this you know, going to, uh, what's gonna be the long-term impact uh, on this? Uh, within the African-American community, is this a way, you know, the myths of, is this a way to get rid of, uh, uh, kill off some of the African-Americans in the community? Uh, are we being the, the, uh, the guinea pigs? Uh, because, because of, you know, instances like um, the Tuskegee syphilis study uh, and some of the, the disproportionate or, uh, things that have happened as it relates to uh, research uh, in the African-American community. The studies, uh, and traditionally, when you have clinical trials, uh, African-Americans have participated in clinical trials for uh, the, the level of trust or lack of, of trust uh, and participation and, and concern and uncertainty. Uh, so that has been a traditional pattern. I think one of the unique things about these vaccines is that um, in the clinical trials, it was... Um, uh, emphasized and critical that minorities were included and they had to be included at, um, at a significant level so that they could be uh, followed, they would be a part of the clinical trials to understand uh, the impact, if any, that these vaccines were having on 
minority communities because we do know that with certain medications or with certain instances, they may impact in a different, uh, have the impact in a different uh, way. But I, I think it's the role that, that I play and that others play is information is power and making certain that we're providing the information and that we are informing uh, our communities. And just as we We'll partnered with trusted sources in the communities, continuing those efforts so that we can collectively get more people vaccinated. That brings us to an important point, which I'd like you to elaborate on, if you wouldn't mind, and that is, how does the vaccine work? I think a lot of people are very uneducated as to the process, what's going to happen once they get vaccinated, are they going to actually get um, COVID, you know, it, it, you know, kind of like when you get a flu vaccine, what, you know, can you tell people what they can expect? So the one thing that, since you mentioned the flu vaccine, I want to mention this now before I forget it. Um, one of the things that's recommended is that if you're getting the flu uh, vaccine, if you're getting the shingle vaccines, any vaccines that you're getting, if you're going to get the uh, COVID vaccine, that you wait at least 14 days before you get the vaccine. And that's one of the questions that's asked. And the importance of that is that if you are going to have an effect uh, or, or side effect, you wanna be able to differentiate between is this side effect associated with, say if you had the flu vaccine or is it associated with the COVID vaccine? So it is recommended that you wait 14 days. Now with the, yeah, I'm gonna try and, and explain this um, um, in, in simple terms. Um, with the Pfizer and with the Moderna vaccine, the, um, we all have what's called messenger RNA that's, that's in, um, in, our, in our system. It's a part of our body chemistry. So with the coronavirus, it has spike protein. And when we say that, whenever you see the, the, the pictures of COVID, it's like a ball with these little things sticking out, sticking out of it. And that's what we call the spike protein. It's those spikes that are sticking out that allows it to attach to membranes and get into, get into the bodies. So what the goal was with both of those was to create uh, something that would, that would attach to those spike proteins that would prevent them from, for, for, for instance, causing the, um, the virus. And so that's where the uh, messenger RNA comes in and it encodes the uh, spike protein. So when it is, uh, the other thing that I want to say is that uh, the vaccine does not contain any of the, uh, of the anti, uh, of the virus. It does not contain any of the virus. It does not contain uh, metals. Uh, it does not contain some of the other misses that it has uh, a chip in it so that you can be tracked and you can be followed. It doesn't have that. Our phones can track us better than, <laughs> than this can. Um, but it has water in it. It has uh, lipids in it, uh, it uh, that help to create a protection around it. It has... You're muted. Yeah. Moving my hand, so I have to try to stop. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a person talking, I move around. So. <laughs> <laughs> it has these things. So when it is injected, uh, remember that it has this messenger RNA that is encoded for the spike protein. And so just with anything, uh, you know, when we get an infection or something, our body tries to, auto we automatically have an immune system that tries to fight off uh, anything that's, that's foreign 
It's like, hey, I don't, I'm not, you're not supposed to be here. What are you? So you try and fight that off. Uh, and so when this virus, uh, uh, when the vaccine, uh, when a person receives the vaccine, then the body begins to create and uh, develop antibodies that would help fight off the uh the, the spike protein, the uh, virus. And so with both of those, you receive two shots. The first shot says that it gives you about a 50% uh, efficacy of, of protection. And so uh, sometimes people have stated that they may have had you know, chills or they may have had fevers. And those are indications that your body is working to kind of fight off uh, this new something that is, that is in its system. Um, with, um, with the Pfizer, you wait 21 days. With the Moderna, you wait 28 days and you receive your second uh, shot. And that boosts your level of antibodies that are being developed and being created in your, in your uh, system. And uh, the other thing is that, that's something that's asked sometimes is if I, have the, uh, if I have the virus, should I get the vaccine? Uh, and the answer is no, because your body is going to build up antibodies in there. And so it's already doing that, uh, which is what the vaccine would do. The other thing that is recommended is that you wait several months after you, if you've had the virus, that you wait several months afterwards before you get, before you actually get uh, the vaccine uh, as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for that explanation, because I think there are a lot of people who have never heard that. And I think it, it is so necessary to get accurate information out there to people and, and letting them, you know, know that this is how it actually works. Now, I also understand with the vaccine, there are some issues with people who want the vaccine, but can't get it. Um, so at what point are we going to see that there are, there's enough vaccine to go around uh, to everybody because that's another issue when we talk about disparities in healthcare because often the African-American community is the community that is not able to gain access because of uh, also economic disparities. So how do we deal with that? You know, I, I think that over time, uh, the, the availability of supply will increase the idea and the thought was with everything that you do, you want to do it in a strategic and systematic process. And so um, the thought process was that the first uh, individuals that would receive the vaccine would, of course, be frontline workers, uh, healthcare professionals, because these are the people that are taking care of the system. So you want to make certain that they are taken care of. Uh, then the, the uh, including people that were uh, vulnerable populations over 75 and then now uh, 70. What has been the concern and has been expressed in the African-American community is that when you look at the life expectancy, a lot of uh, individuals don't live till 75 or 70. In addition to that, when we talk about this, this virus, there are pre-existing conditions that um, make certain individuals more vulnerable to contracting the virus. Some of those being diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, cardiovascular disease. And so when you think about those three particularly, those three are have a higher prevalence in the African-American community. So one would think, well, if when this virus started and they've continued to say that these are pre-existing conditions that make individuals more susceptible to contracting the disease, 
We know that African-Americans have a higher rate of these diseases. When we look at the number of deaths of this um, uh, related to this virus, African-Americans are dying at a higher rate than one would think that they would be in that uh, one of those first tiers. And unfortunately, that is where I think the disconnect of um, connecting all of the dots and all of the components uh, falls short because they're not. And that is something that I and others, you know, uh, that, that uh, Ralph uh, uh, certainly have a concern of. And, and the fortunate thing is that being in a place where we can express our concerns and, uh, and, and, and lend our suggestions and, and push for uh, those individuals or those, those populations to be uh, included uh, now. Yeah, I, and I, I wanted to ask you, Ralph, uh, she, she mentioned that, um, and you know, with so many people still being hesitant, how, how do you think we effectively communicate factual information while people are dealing with so many personal issues and in many cases, justifiable grievances at this time? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Celeste, because, you know, this is not unlike other areas of health where people have had to convene themselves, almost organize themselves into um, getting that information. Uh, you know, when we had the initiation of HIV, that was totally unknown. There was a lot of misconception, lack of science. You had groups organized, you know, it was controversial at the time, but several groups like ACT UP, you know, people mobilized and uh, women of color uh, AIDS coalition that I worked with back in the 90s, you know, people found that their answers to that and they said, I need to understand it better. People want to be healthy. And so I think when they, when they want to be healthy, you know, the, the idea that um, we've suffered so much death in disparity and disparities in the African-American community and other uh, black and brown communities this is a signal to people that we can't stand, sit back. You know, we can't sit back. One of the great things about the convening that, that um, you mentioned earlier is that there'll be two more sessions. And that second session will be about mobilizing for action. It's mm -hmm. not only mobilizing for action around COVID, but mobilizing for action around reducing and eliminating health disparities and building health equity in so many areas. But I think your, your question really um, makes me think about how resilient people are, how they will come up with their solutions, and we who are in positions of influence, whether that's at the school or other ways, we have to be there to meet that demand. Um, you know, as Dr. Farmer Dixon was talking about so beautifully about how this vaccine was developed and how it works, just a simple thing like knowing why is so COVID, why is COVID so dangerous for the lungs? Why are people dying of respiratory? Well, that little bugger, you know, that chases after those cells in the lungs. And uh, people with asthma may not understand how, how at risk they are. They might think they're going to get a cold, but that, that lung ailment really puts you at much higher risk. So those kinds of things, I think, are just simple, you know, lay people. You know, I'm not a clinician, so if I can understand it, you know, <laughs> I'll understand it. And uh, when, when people like Dr. Farmer Dixon explain it so well, boy, we could mobilize people to really share that information in communities, as you said, churches, salons, wherever they can, and we will solve the problem together. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I know we really haven't talked about, uh, we, you've mentioned, I think, what's going to happen in the second and third convenings, but can you talk a little bit also, Ralph, about the main objectives of the uh, Health Summit, please? Yes. Um, this terrific planning committee that Dr. Farmer Dixon talked about from business and academia, uh, the community uh, association, professional associations and public health, uh, they, uh, in those deliberations that took place over this past year, understood that we really need to elevate racial justice and equity and the COVID-19 health disparity conversations toward mobilizing action and policy change. Uh, one of the objectives is to incorporate the economic, scientific, social, cultural, and professional concepts for treating the whole person and being more inclusive of our community members as a pathway to health equity. We are going to help, especially in this first session, increase the understanding of the science and the growing knowledge about the oral systemic connection. We have terrific um, speakers on the panel. Uh, one, uh, a really dedicated uh, dentist, another dedicated medical person who comes from the specialty of otolaryngology. Um, those uh, individuals are going to lead us through uh, the encouragement to medical and other health professionals to embrace oral health as part of overall health and well-being. And our final objective is to highlight the example of where collaboration and integrated healthcare models are working and how that can drive value in, in healthcare. So it's a long list of objectives, but we're getting, them, uh, we're getting experts to talk about that and we're going to carry that through all three sessions. Yeah, I know uh, you mentioned that uh, the conference will address the integration of oral health and primary care. And one response to that, I understand, might be having a dentist to actually administer the vaccine. Dr. Farmer Dixon, what do you think of that? We have had conversations about uh, making certain that you have enough sufficient number of people, personnel and staff. And so there have been conversations with the health department for providing training and doing certifications to be able to do that so that we increase when you have the supply, having sufficient workforce to be able to actually provide that. And I think that uh, dentists certainly uh, can play a pivotal role um, in the administering and, and rolling out uh, to increase the availability of the vaccine. I think when we think about just with the role that we've played in COVID testing and being a significant part of that uh, piece as well, um, uh, dentists have, have been on the front lines helping with doing assessments and administering the, the uh, testing uh, in communities. And so we certainly can and uh, are willing to be a, compart of, a, a component of uh, administering the vaccine as well. But, but when I look at someone like yourself, who is managing a dental school, eight clinics, uh, <laughs> three of Nashville's main COVID testing sites, is there, a, a, you know, enough time? And what about the economic side of this, the economic impact? No one is yet talking about that. But, you know, what are we in need of to be able to really level the playing field? I think uh, so that, um, you know, there are things that I think about is accessibility, availability, and acceptability. When I think about those three components, uh, 
what is critical is that uh, we have you know pop-up sites uh, that that we are able to utilize uh, and that we have mobilization units that we're able to utilize to again meet the com- meet the people where they are in the community so that uh, that helps to uh, uh, improve the accessibility uh, the increase in having the actual uh, vaccine available and I think you know over time as I mentioned I think we will have an increase in that so we'll have the availability but the other component of that is acceptability doing that and having and, and if people still have fear so I think that is where trusted voices uh, have to be an integral component of making certain that the communities are educated and partnership partnerships with trusted organizations and trusted institutions. Uh, there's power in numbers. And so um, making certain that that the, the accurate information is being provided and uh, question and answer uh, sessions so that the communities can be informed and guiding them to trusted resources uh, so that the information that they receive will be accurate and that helps them to feel more comfortable about this whole uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. This is a question for both of you, too. Do you all see us actually getting back to any sense of normalcy in the near or distant future um, with the new strains, you know, that have recently come out? Uh, we actually attempted to have this conference uh, last month, but because of the new strains coming out, we had to delay. And so we're going to possibly see additional strains, just like the flu, right? I'm, I'm assuming. Um, so I know you don't have a crystal ball, but uh, can you tell me what you, what you see as a time frame where we might have enough people vaccinated where you can maybe not wear a mask? So um, shall I go first? Sure. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, so, yes, thank you for acknowledging no crystal ball here. But you know, <laughs> one of our colleagues recently said that um, you know a new normal might not be what we should be looking for. Is that the, you know we've we've come up with a, a new set of creative dynamics that are leading us to a new way of living. Um, it might not be the most desired way. Not everyone likes wearing masks. Not not everyone likes um, having to stay distant from one another, especially when in times of uh, sickness, death, or, or the opposite of celebration. But we are being creative about how to, you know, keep our, our health and our businesses going. Um, the businesses have suffered quite a bit. And I think people who like to go out to restaurants and like to go to movies want to get back to that. But we are going to learn something new about our personal hygiene, our, our population health issues, uh, and, you know, a, my public health experience is, as I said, is not clinical. It's focused on prevention. And if we prioritize prevention in our daily living and, and really come to understand what that means, I have a feeling we could get to that new uh, set of dynamics, I'll call it that new social order yeah. uh, in a way. I just have to add, though, I hope that the new social order will not be loaded with the kinds of fear and worry about um, you know, what, what makes us different and will really celebrate what makes us so much alike in terms of celebrating those differences and really maintaining that human interaction as the highest value. I'd say, the word, love. I'm, I'd say the word love, but I'm not sure everybody's ready for that, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I echo uh, what he says. And I think that uh, he said it very well. 
it's not what what is different, but how we are how we are united. And I think that uh, you can look at the glass half empty or half full. And I think this has created an opportunity for us to look at how we can do things differently, but different in a better way. It has allowed us to look at how we can work together more collectively in healthcare uh, and how uh, the different uh, members of, of healthcare uh, and, and the added value that they bring to addressing uh, this, this pandemic. Uh, I think as we move forward, will, will we eventually get back to, to some level of normalcy? Yes, I, but I do think that it will be different than what uh, we, we typically uh, have seen. I think that some of the model, uh, uh, healthcare delivery models that have been instituted uh, that we knew uh, will, will remain. Uh, and that will allow us to do things differently, uh, but in a better and more efficient way that probably had it not been for the pandemic, it may not have allowed us uh, to do that. And so, you know, that's, that's um, trying to see the silver lining in, in the midst of all of this, I think has allowed us to, to, to do that. If I were to speak personally, I think with some of the uh, members of the healthcare team that I've, that I've worked with, I don't know that I would have had the opportunity to work with them had it not been uh, for this. And I think that those relationships will be longstanding uh, relationships that have allowed us to, to develop some collaborations that will continue uh, beyond this. But uh, am I ready to uh, go into a restaurant and, and not have to wear a mask and, and, and not look around and make sure that everybody <laughs> is having one? Am I ready to do that? Absol uh, absolutely. Uh, so I think we're all wanting that. that it, it helps you appreciate some of the little things that we used to do that we kind of took for granted. Uh, so, um, uh, but I think eventually, eventually we'll get there. Getting back to the conference before we're, we're almost uh, ready to wrap up here, but I would like to know uh, from both of you also, and we'll, we'll start with you, Ralph, what are some of the key takeaways that you hope people will gain? You know, what are you hoping to hear from Dr. Fauci and President Hildreth? This is obviously going to be a historic conversation that, you know, people are waiting to hear. We have almost 2,000 people signed up. Uh, to hear this conversation. So we, we really want to know what do you hope to hear yourself and what do you hope others will take away? Yeah, well, I mean, you couldn't ask for more informed and um, dedicated leaders than Dr. Hildreth and Dr. Fauci. You know, that kind of dedication to even share their time with us um, during this summit is, is really impressive. You know, I, I, I hope on, this is on multiple levels, so I'll try to, to, to make it more concise. I hope that the, the healthcare um, uh, providers and, and care uh, providers are, are really thinking about the mouth as part of the body. We, we miss so many uh, opportunities for health when we don't do that, you know. Um, and, and, and in fairness, the training for the, I'll call it a non-dental clinician, hasn't been robust enough. Uh, to, to really say, well, how can I, if I'm a pediatrician, how can I help? That training is available now. So I hope that the summit is going to be a reminder that you, um, the tools do exist. As Dr. Parma Dickens said, you need colleagues who are champions with you for the health of the mouth. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to um, 
suggest any of the, the movement forward on this uh, without calling attention to why this was so important to me and the takeaways that I'm looking for. In 2007, I had only been six months in my job in the oral health field and a young, young boy, uh, Diamante Driver, died from an untreated oral abscess. It went from his mouth to his head. That became a story that many of us, including myself, are still telling. As a black child, with access to the Washington DC area, terrific dentists that both of you know, available, but not to that child. Um, what if a pediatrician had been able to intervene there? What if another health specialist, what if a nurse, what if someone else had done that? The, the teamwork that's needed. So I hope there's gonna be a, a, a call to that kind of champion support that, um, that people will dial into the uh, summit. And then I hope on the other part that we really learn a new language, not only about COVID and the information that Dr. Holders and Dr. Fauci will give us, but also among ourselves to say, there is evidence there, but I need to know more. Can I join you in that journey to learn more together? Mm -hmm. Dr. Farmer Dixon, um, what, do you, what do you hope are some of the takeaways uh, personally and for the group? Well, I, I think that from, from a personal standpoint of, of Meharry Medical College, I think this will be an important and this will be an opportunity for uh, people that are not familiar with Meharry to uh, hear about Meharry and to hear from uh, Meharry. Dr. Hildreth is an in infectious disease expert that has been involved with uh, infectious disease um, uh, for decades. And uh, so to create a platform where he can provide his expertise along with the expertise of Dr. Fauci, I think is uh, a landmark opportunity to do that. Uh, but more importantly, I think that this is an opportunity for uh, the audience to be informed and to have a greater understanding of oral health and oral disease and the impact that it has on, on systemic health and disease and uh, the social justice that surrounds that and how we work collectively uh, to, uh, to begin to have conversation and dialogue, as we say, a call to action to improve these things. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, President Hildreth has just been named to a committee with the Biden administration. Is that right? Um, <laughs> and and basically, um, I think uh, that's going to be key, too, in terms of what President Biden was talking about, unity and, uh, you know, getting people together collectively to address this issue. I, I think about how the vaccines came about. They say it normally takes like 10 years to produce a vaccine as, you know, if we look at past precedent, uh, but we were able to get these mobilized that quickly because we had that many people coming together to work together on something and solve a problem. And hopefully the same thing can be done with this. Um, I think, uh, you know, this has been a great opportunity to uh, look at some of the oral systemic uh, issues that we face and also, you know, health disparities and what, what we can see and hope for for the future. And I, I have one final thing I'd like to wrap up with, and that is, um, will people be able to actually 
collaborate in some way. This conference is very different in that we normally plan to actually come together, but we're not able to do that. So how, how are you all planning to accomplish that um, and, and have people actually be able to collaborate? Yeah. Yeah, take it. <clears throat> yeah the, um, you know, the opportunities for this are terrific. Uh, a call to action means you're being invited. And we will work through some of the communication details, but we want people to, during the uh, convening itself, to enter in their comments and questions. We wanna build on that. We wanna lead toward the second one with uh, an idea of, you, 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 we might even post, for instance, what are some of those collaborative opportunities? You know, there's a program, a National Interprofessional Initiative on Oral Health. But there's a Reed Scholars. You know, all of those folks are, have joined us on the planning committee. We'll make their information available after the summit, and we can invite people into a conversation and, and those opportunities where if they're looking to get involved, we will find a way for them to get involved. Right. And this is a free event, and we should remind people that it is open to the public, uh, free of charge. Uh, they can go to Eventbrite to sign up uh, looking under the Meharry Health Summit. Uh, Dr. Farmer Dixon, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Cut you no, off. I think that the, when we say it's a call to action, we, we're very intentional about wanting to have the conversation, but the conversation leading to action steps and action items and, and collaboration so that we can actually move the needle in a direction of our ultimate goal is that we want to improve or decrease the, the health disparities gap. And we really want to improve in that area and understand the impact of social justice and how we can uh, create equity uh, and health equity uh, for all. So it's really the action that we can take to do that. Well, thank you to both so very much. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Sheree Farmer-Dixon and Mr. Ralph Fiacella for joining us today on the Celestine Show. I hope that uh, those of you who want to take action and get involved will certainly join us for the Health Summit coming up this week at Meharry Medical College and other parts virtually. <laughs> but we hope that uh, if you're wanting more information on that, you can call 615-327-6520. And that number again is 615-327-6520. If you'd like to sign up, there will also be continuing education credits available for the event. So Again, thank you for joining us. That's all the time we have for now. Go out there and make it a great day. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us.